Morning, everyone. If you could just spend a moment and turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be going through that chapter today, and I am not going to read it out to you, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through and tell the story of this chapter and point to some bits as we go. So you will need your Bible in front of you to see what's going on this morning. Just to give you a moment to turn to that, let me just pray this morning and then we'll get stuck in. Thank you, Father God, for your word, Lord God, and the life that there is within it. And thank you so much for this incredible story of the life of David that we have just to uh, feed on, Father God, to find out truths, Lord God, about how to live a life of faith that pleases you, Lord God, and about how you work and who you are working in our lives. Lord God, we pray that just as we look at this today, Father God, you will bless our time together, Father God, and you will sow in the rich lessons of of David's life into the fabric of our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, Butters talked about uh, David and Goliath, that well-known story where David chucks a stone, just trusts in God, and we see that giant fall. And this week, we kick off exactly where that story ends, straight after that seminal event in David's life. And what we see is after this moment of David and Goliath, everything changes for David. He goes from being in the fields to being in the barracks and being in Saul's army. And actually, as it kicks off, as it starts, what we see is the great success he's seen um, continues initially. And the very first four chapters of this recount an incredible encounter between David and Saul's son and heir apparent, Jonathan, who himself is a great warrior and has done uh, amazing things in the Lord's spirit. You can see those in chapter 14 of Samuel. Rather than seeing David as a rival, um, actually something incredible happens in his first moments. He sees him as a, a kindred spirit, one who trusts in the Lord for victory to a, a greater extent than, than he did even. And a remarkable friendship kicks off in these four chapters that we're going to pick up on as we go on through David's story, where the one who has essentially had the, the kingdom all at his fingertips was heir apparent, gives up his right to this kingdom, gives up all his glory. He offers David his armour, his sword, and he offers him lifelong service and fealty. I mean, he essentially abdicates his throne to David in this moment. It's incredible. And actually, if you look at the details of this, Jonathan would have been at 20 to 30 years David senior. But he sees such an anointing on this boy that he humbly passes it on and, and begins an incredible and important friendship. From here, in verse 5, we also see that David continues to have amazing success in the campaign against the Philistines. It wasn't just one victory that he won. The king makes him a leader in his army and the people start to love him. The the shepherd boy begins on the battlefield to become an Israelite war hero. It's incredible. But quickly, as we go through this chapter, in chapter 18, we see that all is actually not well. 
and very subtly, well not very subtly actually, very quickly we suddenly see that there's a second Goliath that starts to emerge in David's life. A second enemy, a very powerful earthly enemy, starts to rear his head against David. Though this time it's not a Philistine Goliath, a huge obvious enemy, but it is an Israelite Goliath, a deeply insecure but powerful king, the King Saul himself, who rather than seeing God's hand in David's life, like Jonathan did at the beginning of this chapter, he starts to see him as a dangerous rival. And this Goliath starts to rear its head in verses six to eight, where on the way home from the successful campaign against Goliath and the Philistines, women come out from their home to welcome the victors with song. Uh, Songs of joy, of dance and of instruments. And they sing this, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Uh, And rather than receiving this with gratitude, to anger, jealousy and insecurity suddenly flare up in Saul because of this comparison that's made between him and David, where the people seemingly love David more than him. And we see a fear take hold of him that David would wrench the kingdom that God had given him from his hands. And we're told in verse 9 that he eyed David suspiciously from the moment these women had sung this song onwards in their lives. And between 10 to 11, we see that this jealousy, this envy and this fear and anger takes such a hold of him that he goes into a mad frenzy. Saul goes crazy and evil takes over his mind and his heart where the spirit of God used to be. And as David plays music to him in his court, like he has already by the harp to soothe him, his hatred starts to overflow. It's a really sad scene. And I just want to pause here in the retelling of this story, just to mention for a moment, although it's not the theme today, Saul, in this moment of his life, is an incredible lesson of warning about the dangers of pride and comparison and jealousy forming in our hearts and how they can make us miss the purposes of God in our life and in the lives of others. And this talks to us about the vital importance. What happens to Saul here is is a warning sign of the vital importance of rooting out uh, this kind of spirit as it grows up in us with God's help. Saul totally, totally missed what God wanted to do with him and what God wanted to do with David in building his kingdom because of these things in his heart. So I just want to stop and plea with you quickly. Be sensitive to these things in your life. If there are any indicators, any of them in your life, then weed them out right now. Don't let them grow into the garden of your heart so that they can be damaging like they were in Saul's life. But Saul doesn't weed these things out in his life. Actually, from here on in, in chapter 18, things go from bad to worse. 
Paul's poor Saul's heart becomes so blackened by these things that instead of being grateful for David and supporting how he's helping grow in God's kingdom alongside him, he tries to kill David in increasingly devious and deceptive ways. Let's have a look at a couple of these. Uh, Firstly, in verse 11, he outright throws a spear or two at him. We're told he tried to pin him to the wall straight away. He just tries to kill this young man straight out because of his madness and jealousy. Then, secondly, he tries to get others to kill David for him and make a martyr of him. We read in verse 13 that he makes him the commander of thousands and sends him out to the battlefield, to the front line of the ongoing battle against the Philistines. He tries to get him killed in war. And then finally, from verse 17 onwards, he uses the most dastardly trick of all. He tries to marry David off to his daughters, first his eldest, then his youngest, Michael. Do you know, this last attempt wasn't because his daughters were some kind of hideous monsters or that they ran up such bills on credit cards that he just thought, ha, if I give them to David, they will bankrupt him someday. It, It was because in offering them in marriage to David, Saul saw an opportunity to put David in serious danger. Saul realises here that he can use a custom of the age, the expected bride payment, the dowry, which would have been huge for a princess, to trap and kill David. We see this between verses 23 and 26, where Saul's servants bring from Saul the offer of marriage to his youngest daughter, who has fallen for David. And David basically responds to this, honestly, in verse 23, It's lovely of the king to offer me his daughter, but I have no money to pay the the dowry. I'm I'm too poor to pay pay the bride payment. You know I can't afford the offer of the king. And Saul's servants acting on the king's behalf go on and they say, hey, look, don't worry about it. The, The king doesn't want you to pay him money. He has no need of money. All he wants from you, in verse 25 is the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. What a horrible request this is. I mean, 20 might have been passable, but a hundred is just nasty. A hundred foreskins of his enemies at that time is what he wants. Uh, Let me just pause here again for a moment with a bit of advice to those of you who might be courting. If you fall in love and you go to a prospective father-in-law to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage and he asks in return for a hundred foreskins you really should walk away just drop that pursuit there are plenty more fish in the sea because it's indicative of one thing and one thing alone he doesn't really want you to marry his daughter instead he wants you dead he wants you killed at the hands of his enemies And as verse 25 says at the end, that's exactly what Saul was doing. He was setting David an impossibly unreasonable task so he could get him to fall by the hands of his enemies. This was an attempt to take David's life. This was a bridal trap to end his life. But as we approach the end of this chapter, we find that none of these attempts to kill David by Saul are successful. 
And as the chapter closes out, we read that despite these attacks, you know, David, he collects the foreskins. He wins the hand of his bride. He's raised up to a place of honour in the royal household. And he has such favour and success that the final words of the chapter in verse 30 say, he had greater success than all of Saul's other servants and his name became highly esteemed. You know, Goliath's number two's plans to harm David, you know, despite Saul's great power, completely backfire here. And as a result, we're told in verse 29 that Saul was David's enemy continually from this time on. You know, as a young 20-something, I worked under a man who was a great leader in many ways. But in honesty, he had a bit of Saul in him and he just didn't see it at all. He was blind to it, and so never do what I encouraged you to do earlier on. He never sought to root it out and get rid of it. You know, he could fly off the handle at a moment's notice. He sometimes belittled and shot down publicly, and sometimes he construed actions that were never intended to harm as working against him. Do you know, out of insecurity, he would accuse you of these types of things. Now, thankfully, he never went as far as throwing a spear at me or trying to marry me to his daughters. But it was an honesty, an exhausting period of my life working with him. Life felt a bit like an endless battle. Sometimes all your energies were spent entirely on trying to smooth over a situation, like you were playing a harp to him to calm him. Other times they were spent fretting about whether there was even a problem at all or whether you were just being too young, too ambitious. You know, you were double guessing your motives and whether he was right and you were wrong. And all the time you were aware that it wasn't as simple as him just being a bad guy out to attack you in the kingdom of God like Goliath. But that on the one hand, this was a great guy with some real gifts in him. Whilst on the other, you saw that there was something wrong in his heart that was damaging others. And you know, the hardest thing uh, about this time, about this battle, this unclear, murky battle, was that it wasn't over in a day. It didn't involve a quick fling of a stone and a cup of tea and just leaving it behind me. It went on for years and left some lifelong scars. Do you know, the truth in life is that life's Goliaths, enemies and challenges, come in many forms. And often the longer and harder battles in life are not against obvious enemies, but those that should be working alongside us and with us. But instead have come to see life through lenses of jealousy, through suspicion, through rivalry, whose actions and motives have stopped matching up towards us. You know, an insecure boss who needs us to do a good job for him, but doesn't want us to do too well because we might leave or take some of his credit from him. You know, an aggressive, jealous partner who puts you down to manage his or her own fears. A church leader who has gained some status and success 
but who becomes so afraid of losing it that he tries to control everything and everyone in his congregation. And what we see throughout chapter 18 in this second Goliath is a severe case of one of these Goliaths, one of these types of battles in David's life. And actually, although it's not as widely spoken about, we can learn as much from the way David fights this Goliath as we did from the way he fought the first Goliath. So so what do we learn? What lessons do we learn from David's life? There's two main things I just want to draw out for you this morning with the time we've got left. Firstly, David fights this Goliath with humility. He never gives up on humility. I mean, humility is an interesting word to use in the context of a battle. Uh, Do you know, it's a weapon that can be used against an enemy. We often see it actually as a weakness, maybe even a flaw when it comes to conflict and competition in life. The trait that will mean that when the CEO jobs get handed out, we're still serving teal on minimum wage somewhere. But this is not what the Bible shows us about humility and not what David's story teaches us either. Do you know, throughout his whole attack, this whole chapter, David clearly remains truly humble and servant-hearted. He keeps a, a lowly and servant opinion of himself. I think one line sums this up more than any for me as I look at the text, where David in 1823 says to Saul's servants, Does it not seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and of no reputation? No reputation. No reputation. He may have been a poor man, but he definitely had reputation. This was a guy who killed Goliath. He'd already won huge military victories. Women lined the street to sing songs about him. And he was already known throughout the kingdom. He had a reputation that as a guy I longed for. Do you know, by what standard of reputation are you judging yourself, David? Flip. I mean, I get one text saying, hey, good preach today, man. I start to puff myself up and think that I'm the next Spurgeon. Yet David does not regard any of the acclaim he has had. It's worthless to him. He never gets an inflated view of himself. To him, these things are fleeting praise, not true renown. They don't change his opinion of himself. And this isn't false humility. Just because he knows he has to show humility to fit in or be safe, his actions... uh, truly show how servant-hearted he is throughout this chapter. Throughout the whole time Saul attacks him, he never repays evil for evil. He never throws a spear back at Saul. He never says a bad word about his king. And he always does that which is asked of him with a willing heart to do his best, even when it was a fool's errand of certain death like seeking a hundred foreskins for your bride. You know, these are not the actions of a man with an ego that can be bruised. They are a man who has genuinely got a low opinion of himself or lowly opinion of himself, and he responds out of this. David remains throughout this chapter the shepherd boy in the field, even though his circumstances have changed. 
serving others is greater than himself. And he always remains the one that knows that true reputation, true greatness belongs to one alone, God himself. No matter what success and acclaim he receives in life, if he compares it to God, it's nothing, it's fleeting. It comes, it goes. I mean, David is the writer of Psalm 8, where it says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? Ego has no place when you know who you are compared to who God is. And your primary purpose is serving him. So David here against Saul, whose ego is bruised, who's fragile, who fears a damaged reputation and who attacks when he feels his kingdom is threatened and his position is threatened, responds with genuine humility. And what we have to understand here is that David was not being weak at all when he behaves in this way. He was actually worshipping. He was applying to his life in all circumstances an understanding of who he was before God. In fact, in his humility, he was showing more passion for God, more strength, more faith and more self-control than the majority of us show in a lifetime. In displaying this persevering humility, he's displaying the strength to keep trusting God for his future. Despite circumstances, despite hardship, despite difficult, despite this attack being so unjust. Because it doesn't change who God is for him. And interestingly here, as he holds on to these things, he never gets walked over because of his humility. He never. In fact, actually, every time he responds out of humility, it's like he's the most light-footed boxer in the world, faster than Muhammad Ali in his prime. Whenever a blow is coming, the text shows his humility is the sidestep that gets him out of the path. And as a result, this whole chapter is a bit like that old Spider-Man scene, you know, in the original Spider-Man film where Spider-Man goes wrestling and he comes up against this huge wrestler guy who tries to attack him for all his worth with all of his might who despite trying his best just can't hit him because he keeps moving so fast. Humility acts like this, this humility born of his worshipful understanding of who God was and his retaining of his good heart to his new enemy is the thing that keeps David going through this long haul fight. If he had fought back out of a hurt, wounded ego or a sense of self-righteousness at the injustice, if at any point he just picked up a stone and tried to fling it at him or go blow to blow with him, he would have been shot down by this powerful enemy. This was not a fight that could have been won with rocks. So this is the first thing we learn, that David fights this battle with a heart of true humility which helped him dodge the blows of the enemy. But actually, if I was to finish here, I would only be giving you half a picture of what's going on in this chapter. There's a far greater and deeper truth 
To understand about humility here, then just it helps you to dodge the attacks of the enemy. To explain, let me just give you, uh, let's imagine something together. I want you to imagine for a second a kid being repeatedly picked on in a playground by an older, stronger child. This child, day by day, pushes him over, steals his lunch money, throws things at him. He makes his life a living nightmare. And the younger kid never fights back because, well, to be honest, he's pretty helpless to fight back. And then imagine one day that a sixth former sees this older kid's behaviour and decides, I hate this injustice and harm. He sees the kid as a good kid. Do you know, and he decides in himself to watch out for the younger child. So from here on in, every time the bully approaches the younger child, he makes it his business. This sixth form makes it his business just, just to quietly sidle up behind the younger whenever he comes over and look the bully straight in the eye and just shake his head from behind the child. Just imagine the bully's reaction. Imagine all his power and bravery melting away and the true insecure coward within coming out. Imagine the bully just going pale. He realises that whilst the sixth form is there, this kid is just untouchable because he recognises somebody far more powerful than him is present. In this imagining, this is exactly what we see happen here when David stands in worshipful humility as he doesn't repay evil for evil but continues to humbly serve and honour wholeheartedly despite Saul's attempt. Saul starts to notice something more and more about David that the Lord God was with David. Somebody more powerful than him was stood beside David and as a result he was untouchable. And we see Saul the bully become more and more afraid as a result, as he notices this. We see this firstly in verse 12, after David had miraculously dodged Saul's spear throws. Verse 12 says this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And then again at the end of the passage, after David had overcome the, the marriage trap, verse 28 to 29, but when Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David, he was even more afraid of David. What we learn here is that as David stands in humility before Saul and God, God sees what's going on and stands by David. He presences himself with him and starts steadily, over time, not overnight, to turn that which was intended for harm into that which was used for good. We see here in David's example that God, like the sixth former in my example, sees the truth and injustice in the situation and fights for him who stands in true worship for humility. And as the end of this chapter, as we have already seen, God, as he fights for him, honours David amazingly. You know, as we begin to wrap up today, these two key lessons of David's life in this chapter that humility is powerful and that God fights on behalf of the humble are not just found in this story. 
In fact, all that David's story is doing here is modelling the lived reality of what the Bible teaches time and time again. Now, 1 Peter 5, 6-7, James 4-6, James 4-10, 1 Peter 5, 5, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Luke 14, 11, Proverbs 3, 34, 15, 33, 18, 12, 22, 4, 2 Corinthians 12, 10 Psalm 149 and Matthew 23, 10-12, all repeat in some form the same truth, that God opposes the proud and shows favour to the humble. All focus on the truth, that true humility before God and man is precious and powerful as a weapon in the life of a believer that both sustains us in long-term battles and leads to the Lord fighting on our behalf. Do you know, God desperately wants his people to understand that David's example here as he begins to fight this second powerful Goliath, is one he wants all his people to follow in. You know, as 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7 instructs, God wants us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that he may lift us up in due time and cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. Humility is a powerful weapon of faith and worship that protects the believer. And God fights for those who humble themselves. Let me just leave you with this this morning. David is a great example of how powerful humility before God and man is in this chapter and how standing in it turns bad to good as he sustains in it. But just like in the victory of Goliath, David here is again only a shadow and a foretaste of what true humility before God can actually achieve. His humility here before Saul and the victory we see is only a foretaste of what God did through Jesus and Jesus's perfect humility on the cross. Paul shows this in Philippians 2, 4, 2, 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. In this passage here, Paul is showing that it was these very principles. Humility is powerful and God fights and raises up the humble that enabled the greatest victory in all of history to happen. Salvation over at the cross of Christ. It was Christ's perfect humility to the point of death. Love despite injustice and unwillingness to repay evil with evil, but respond in love. 
and Christ's unwavering understanding and trust that God would fight for him and raise him up in his time that enabled the salvation and forgiveness of mankind for all history, for all who come to the cross to receive it. And the tearing down of the two greatest Goliaths that there ever have been, sin and death. These were totally destroyed at the cross. This is the power of true humility. That David models in his life that we are asked to fully understand and rest in as believers. Does your life model it today? Is the question I've got for you to close with. Or have you become a bit sorely in your spirit? Do you need to just repent in the grace of God, turn around this morning and stand once more in this humility and trust in God? Do you know, to let the same power that brought about the work of the cross come to your life once more and beat the Goliaths that you face. Have you learned these lessons of David and taken them on board? God bless you.